With their new Epic Speed Driver, Callaway is framing the future of speed. Using a jailbreak speed frame structure that connects the sole and crown, they've reduced the head's twisting and deformation at impact. This means more energy stays in the driver face and transfers to the ball. More energy to the ball means more ball speed. Who doesn't want more ball speed? Jailbreak Speed Frame is in the forgiving Epic Max, the Epic Speed, and the tour preferred Epic Max LS. Explore Epic Drivers at CallawayGolf.ca. The next time you're walking around a city, take a look at how much space is devoted to parking. It's on both sides of many roads. It's underground, many giant towers. It's the garages that line nearly every house. And it all adds up to a huge impact on our economy and also on our housing prices. I'm Gabe Friedman, and this week on Down to Business, Ashley Salvador, the founder of the Canada Backyard Housing Association in Edmonton, which advocates for housing and backyards, came on the show to discuss parking. The city of Edmonton recently decided to ditch a rule that forces businesses, homeowners, and property developers to build a minimum amount of parking for every property. Most North American cities have this rule, and the end result is way more parking than we need. Salvador said that Edmonton has 50% more parking than it needs, which means about $200 million in pavement just sits there unused much of the time. We talked about how this policy evolved, its economic ramifications, and why change may be on the horizon. Hi, Ashley. Thanks so much for coming on Down to Business today. Hey, thanks so much for having me. The topic today is parking, and I think most of us don't really think about it unless we can't find a parking space. But you've written that urban parking is actually much more critical to the economy than most of us realize. And I wanted to start by asking if you could explain what a mandatory parking requirement is and what kind of economic impacts parking has. Sure. Now, Minimum parking requirements or or mandatory parking requirements are essentially a form of government-mandated auto-dependence, to be honest with you. So um, it's, it's a form of regulation that requires any business owner, developer, homeowner in our cities to build a certain number of stalls when they create a project, okay? So it, it essentially says, you know, for this type of business, we require X number of stalls. For this type of housing, we require this number of stalls. And there's no real rhyme or reason to it. And parking minimums date back really to the 70s. And they were introduced really as a way to kind of manage parking um, and manage cars in our city. And if you look at the, the rationale behind a lot of the minimum parking requirements, they're not based in a lot of fact or evidence or data. So just as an example, um, there's some funny ones out there that will say, okay, if you're building a go-kart track, you need two stalls per go-kart. Or if you're building a curling rink, you need X number of stalls per sheet of ice. So what this does is it creates a really auto-centric city because a lot of times we're actually oversupplying parking. So in my city, in Edmonton, for example, they actually did an analysis of what our parking supply looks like. And because of parking minimums, we actually have about a 50% oversupply of parking. So it's not an efficient use of our parking resources. What types of economic impacts does this have on, say, small businesses and consumers? So, you know, unfortunately, parking minimums don't allow 
business owners to make contextual decisions based on, you know, their location in a city, based on their target market. So parking minimums almost burden business owners or developers or landowners with additional cost because parking is not free. Uh, it actually costs a lot of money to put in parking stalls, anywhere from 6000 to around $70,000, depending if it's a surface parking lot or maybe it's an underground lot. And at the end of the day, that cost gets baked in to the rents that tenants pay, to the groceries you buy, to the cost of your latte. Uh, so it really has that um, far-reaching effect. What's the net effect of putting all this parking in, in what I'm, I'm guess we're talking about is urban areas? Looking at sort of that net effect of oversupplying parking because of parking minimums and building a city that is really inherently more spread out, simply because we're devoting so much land and space to parking, it results in a less efficient city. So I'm an urban planner. And when you look at the way cities grow and develop, a lot of North American cities that do have parking minimums that are auto-centric are really spread out. And from a financial perspective, it's a lot of additional costs that's placed on taxpayers, it's placed on the city as a whole, because we're building new infrastructure, new roads, new sewers, and schools, sidewalks, fire halls at the fringes because we're so spread out. And we have really an additional infrastructure burden to maintain. So it's a problem across North American cities. A lot of cities are starting to realize that it's a problem and that they're kind of slowly bankrupting themselves. <laughs> so they're reconsidering their growth patterns and saying, okay, we need to densify. We need to stop spreading out endlessly. Uh, we need to get rid of parking minimums so that we can have viable public transit options, uh, more active transportation modes so that people aren't as reliant on personal automobiles and we can start to move to more uh, efficient ways of building our urban areas. I've also experienced the frustration of circling around in the car when there's not parking, you know, which also has negative impacts in terms of, you know, emissions and you can't visit restaurants or stores and shop there. Edmonton recently became the first city in Canada to eliminate this mandatory minimum parking requirement. And I was wondering if you could explain why you think this will work out in a positive way. So really, it's about giving business owners, landowners, homeowners choice and freedom over how much or how little parking they provide. So it's removing that, uh, again, that government mandated uh, supply of parking. So for example, uh, in my line of work, we work with folks who live right next to uh, maybe an LRT stop or a bike lane, and they don't even own cars but they've been forced to build parking uh, on their property because of those rules. So it allows for more flexibility. It allows for more choice. It allows for contextual decision-making and really, you know, allows business owners to build what's right for them. So in that regard, uh, I do think it's going to make a, a pretty substantial difference. And we can loop affordability into this too, because as I explained, the cost of providing those parking stalls does get passed down onto consumers. So I'm even thinking of examples of affordable housing projects that are catered towards folks who do not drive, do not own vehicles. And I've seen million-dollar parking garages built into those types of projects, which obviously impacts the affordability of the housing provided. So there's huge, far-reaching implications when it comes to climate change as well. The more autocentric we are, of course, the more emissions that we produce. 
So being more efficient with our growth patterns, being able to invest in things like public and active transit in a more meaningful way will help us get there as well. Yeah. I mean, it's very interesting though. A lot of the effects of cars that you've described are what economists refer to as externalities or hidden costs, things like sprawl and emissions, which lower air quality. I take someone like you who has a background in urban planning, and I feel like you would be much better suited to know and make a decision about how many parking spaces I need as a business or you know, someone developing a property. Why, I guess, has the policy around this been so seemingly inflexible and created such bad results? So it started off on shaky ground because a lot of those decisions and initial minimums were not really based on facts, evidence, or data. They were kind of just, <laughs> you know, throwing things at a wall saying, well, everyone drives. So I guess there has to be a car for every bedroom that's in this house. Uh, so that's, that's kind of the ground that it was created on. Now, things have evolved since, but I think that a lot of times we'll get pushback, even from community members who fear that if we get rid of parking minimums, there's going to be no parking, which is not the case. And dealing with that fear, helping people understand that it's not about providing no parking. It's just about giving people a choice over how much or how little. And when we look at this from you know, an economic lens or from the lens of a developer, they know that people still drive. They understand that there's still a demand for parking. So they're still likely going to provide it. But again, if they are right next to uh, high-frequency transit and maybe they're catering towards folks who don't drive, they can make that decision. So that inflexibility, it was really rooted in at the outset. And then fear and uncertainty around access to parking, I think, kept us locked in for a long time. So in Edmonton's case, this is a pretty big decision, but it was years in the making. So for, I'd say, the last decade, Edmonton has slowly been reforming its parking requirements, going down from, you have to have two stalls per household to one stall per household. So it, it has been almost an incremental process. And this was just the final move to really open things up. Really interesting. And this is a, a sort of bigger picture question. You also founded the Canada Backyard Housing Association, which advocates for building new homes and backyards. How does this issue tie into what has really become one of the major economic issues for many people in this country, which is housing affordability? Really, a lot of the work that we do is rooted in creating a more efficient, sustainable city. And not just talking environmentally sustainable, but fiscally sustainable as well. And we focus on backyard housing because a lot of North American cities are based around single family homes on very large lots. So it's a way for individual homeowners to kind of participate in the densification of their neighborhoods and in the process, be able to maybe have a passive income, maybe house an aging family member, uh, live in a multi-generational family setup or, or age in place themselves. So there's a lot of benefits for individual homeowners, but as a city, as a whole, it helps us densify, helps us grow in more efficient ways. And by having enough people and population in our neighborhoods, we're able to sustain more businesses, sustain our local schools, have more viable and functional transit options. So it really is about building a healthier city. And the same thing goes for parking minimums. Again, I spoke to the, the inefficient use of land that has been the result of parking minimums. 
and how much space we are just wasting and, and how many stalls are sitting empty because we have oversupplied them. Uh, so getting to that more, I don't want to call it realistic supply, but getting ourselves to a place where we're actually closer to uh, to meeting demand where it's at instead of oversupplying, it, it ties into that efficiency conversation as well. Yeah, it's interesting. You cited sort of two trends, which I see as sort of intention with one another. One is the dominance of car culture and sort of some pushback against it where people are interested in getting rid of parking spaces so that they can have denser, walkable neighborhoods. But then you also mentioned people are very touchy about these sort of planning issues right near their homes, where they'll sort of object to a project if it doesn't have enough parking spaces, sometimes without really doing any kind of data analysis. What makes you optimistic that there's a change coming in this area? You know, I am optimistic. Uh, For a city like Edmonton, that is, (laughs) I would say, almost an unassuming leader to do something like this. Um, you know, we are very auto-centric, quite sprawling, and, you know, history in oil and gas. It might come as a surprise for some people. Uh, having, you know, lived in Edmonton for many years, been embedded in this city, I do find that we have quite progressive planning policies. So for a city like Edmonton to take this step, I think a lot of other cities are going to take note, and they have been taking note. So it, it almost is a nice way to lead, in a sense so that other municipalities are given that permission to also consider a move like this. So yeah, definitely optimistic. And just to your point around kind of the pushback that you'll sometimes see when you have conversations around parking minimums, people take their mobility very personally. And I often talk with people who say, well, I'd love to take public transit or I'd love to be able to bike to work, but it's just not viable. It's not fast or efficient. Sometimes it's not comfortable. Some people don't even feel safe. So we have gone so far in one direction towards making personal automobiles the easiest way to get from point A to point B that we have a lot of catching up to do on the public transit side of things, on the active transit side of things, because people won't make that shift until it's actually viable, right? Until they feel like it's a good alternative. Because if I can get from my house to work by taking a car and it takes me you know, 10 minutes, Versus if I were to take the bus and it takes me half an hour or maybe 45 minutes, maybe I have to do some transfers. It's just not viable for many people. So being able to invest in those alternatives at the same time is really important. So it it works in tandem. You know, we have to think of our mobility system in a really holistic manner. So it's not just about, you know, cars versus uh, active transit or public transit. We need to have alternatives. We need to have options so that people can move in ways that work for them. Do you see car culture and mobility in general as being one of the kind of big obstacles to creating affordable housing? In other words, if we could make neighborhoods more dense, that we would see more affordable housing? Yeah. So, I mean, density is definitely a part of it. It ties into our conversations around zoning as well. And, you know, zoning is this tool, it's kind of the rule book for where we can build certain types of homes, certain types of businesses. And most municipalities still have very strict zoning bylaws. Uh, Many municipalities still have single-family only zoning. Uh, Maybe you're allowed to have a basement suite or a secondary suite, but in many municipalities across Canada, like things like duplexes or row housing is still not allowed in many of our neighborhoods. So being able to have those types of diverse housing options is so important for affordability because not everyone can afford to to purchase a a new single-family home 
or even, you know, an older 1950s single family home. So having things like basement suites, things like garden suites, row housing, townhomes, courtyard style development, uh, even missing middle. That's a, a conversation that a lot of cities are having right now is kind of finding that sweet spot between single family housing and towers. There's that middle ground that's really missing. And I think that holds a lot of potential for affordability, for family-friendly housing as well, and for adding enough density so that we have those vibrant neighborhoods and the services and amenities that everyone's looking for so that they can live more locally, not be so dependent on a car, be able to walk to the grocery store, walk to childcare, maybe bike to school. That's going to be better for all of us. and It's going to be better for the city's pocketbook as a whole. It's also a healthier style of neighborhood. So yeah, there's, there's huge implications for that. This is getting back to the mobility issue for a second, but public transportation is kind of facing an existential crisis in the aftermath of COVID, where I think a lot of people don't want to take the bus or the subway or whatever the case may be. But, but at the same time, at least in Toronto and many other cities, you have seen a lot of restaurants and stores take over what were previously parking spaces and create outdoor dining patios or something else. What do you see happening in, as we come out of the pandemic? We've seen a lot of pretty quick interventions where parking stalls have been turned into patios. Uh, maybe they've been turned into mobility lanes to give people sidewalk expansions. And we always joke that we had this superpower all along to just kind of make those decisions really quickly because, uh, you know, bureaucracies are often, you know, pointed at as moving very slowly and, oh, that's never going to happen. But I would love to see a lot of those interventions stay. I think a lot of people would. And for business owners, they see the benefit. They, they understand that having a safe place for people to come and hang out, having more pedestrian traffic is actually great for businesses. There's a lot of studies that have been done around how people arrive to a business and how much money they spend and how long they spend at that store. People who arrive by bike or by foot or by trans, uh, active transportation, they stay longer, they spend more time, they spend more money. So it's really good for the business community as well. So yeah, those types of interventions, being able to kind of reclaim some of that space for productive uses for people, for businesses, for housing. I'm all for it. Maybe the big winner out of all this will be our city bureaucracies and planning departments will adopt more flexible attitudes towards some of these regulations. Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, I just want to thank you so much for coming on the show, Ashley. It's been really great to talk with you. Well, thank you so much for having me. I've enjoyed our talk. That was Ashley Salvador, the founder and president of the Canada Backyard Housing Association. Thanks to everyone for listening and to the crew that put this episode together, including Bryce Hall for music and production, Yadula Hussein for editing, and Pamela Heaven for web support. I'm Gabe Friedman, and I'll return with a new episode in a week. And until then, you can find all your business news at financialpost.com or by signing up for one of our five weekly newsletters covering energy, economics, work, finance, and investing. Thank you.